guys, welcome to episode 25 of the Mysterious Benedict Society Read Aloud Podcast Book 2. Today we'll be reading chapter 25, but first a recap of chapter 24. The children of Mr. Benedict were trapped in the cave watching Mr. Curtin take all the ducksworth from the staglomites. He told them he planned to keep them around, but only asleep until he needed information from them. Rennie was still hopeful that just maybe Milligan would come to their rescue, but soon realized he wouldn't be after McCracken had told them Milligan jumped off a cliff. Kate revealed she still believes Milligan is alive, thinking he would never jump to his death while they were still concerned. Poor SQ was tricked into letting Mr. Benedict and the children go, while Mr. Kern and McCracker were away. Mr. Benedict, feeling so sad for SQ, accidentally fell asleep and according to Constance, if Mr. Benedict is really worn out, which he was, then he might be asleep for hours. While the children were figuring out a plan to get off the island, Madge the Falcon appeared with a note from Cannibal aboard the shortcut, saying number two was safe on board and they were going to try to get them, but their smaller engine boat was really messed up and so loud it would be very difficult to do. By this point, the children are pretty flustered, but as always, Rennie has a plan. Okay, so that's the end of the summary, but before the episode starts, I just want to give a shout out to my grandpa, who's been listening to me from the very beginning. Uh, Thank you so much for your support, and I love you very much. Chapter 25, Which Shines in the Darkness Descending the mountain with the sledge was the most dangerous physical challenge either of the boys had ever attempted. If not for Kate, they never would have succeeded. Her excellent eyes, her sense of balance, her gauge of distance and slope, to say nothing of her unusual strength, saved the boys from deadly tumbles more than once. And all the while, the sledge had been kept upright to spare Mr. Benedict and Constance, who struggled mightily to keep him on the sledge without falling off herself. Halfway down the mountain, Rennie and Stiggy were already trembling and aching from their excursions, and they were pulling downhill. By the time they reached ground level, even Kate was exhausted. Despite the cooling mist and the unfailing wind, her face radiated heat, and her leg muscles and lungs burned from their unusual strain. Gazing out through the mist across that wide, rocky plain, remembering how hard crossing it had just been the night before, Kate's shoulders drooped. She doubted the boys could make it without a long rest, probably several rests, and there was no way she could pull the sledge alone. Still, the crossing must be attempted. She looked at Rennie and Stiggy, both of them gasping, and doubled over. "'We can't rest long,' she said apologetically. "'A minute or two, and then—' Stiggy straightened up abruptly, his face dripping with perspiration and taut with fatigue, bore a look of resolution so intense it startled Kate. "'No, let's go now. We can't afford to rest.' Sticky's tone struck Rennie just as it expression had struck Kate, and when Rennie looked up wonderingly, he noticed something missing. Sticky, what happened to your spectacles? They fell off and slid down an embankment. I didn't want to waste time going after them. Never mind, I can see well enough to have a long way to go. He took one of the sledge grips in a hand already raw from pulling. I'm ready when you are. Rennie, who didn't feel ready in the least, wiped his brow and made an effort to stand up straight, while Kate drew her shoulders back, suddenly encouraged by Sticky's display of fortitude. "'Where did all this toughness come from?' she asked. Sticky gave her a weak smile. "'I've been saving it up.' "'Well, now is the perfect time to spend it,' said Kate impressed. Indeed, over the long, grueling trek across the plain, Sticky gave all of them hope. It was Rennie who had had the idea, and Kate who'd plotted their course. But it was Sticky who sacrificed the most, and in this process inspired the others to greater effort. His skinny frame quaked with exhaustion, sweat streamed from his head, and more than once his legs wobbled and went out from under him. But each time he rose, collected himself, and set to the task again with a fierceness they'd never seen. 
The fact was that Stiggy had finally given a chance to make up for his errors, a chance to get his friends out of danger, and he was passionately determined to succeed, no matter the cost to himself. When Rennie slipped, Stiggy helped him up. When Kate unkarelistically despaired aloud in their progress, Stiggy assured her that they would make it, and somehow managed to double his efforts. Time and again his body faltered. Time and again Stiggy hauled himself up and pressed on. It was a noble thing to behold, and as the group at long last drew near the forest, Rennie found himself thinking that even if they were caught, he was grateful to have Stiggy as his finest. "'We're actually going to make it,' said Constance, incredulously. And it was true. Their pace had slowed to a crawl, and the boys' hands were blistered and bleeding, but they lacked just a few yards until they could leave the exposed plain for shelter of the forest. "'Of course we'll make it,' Kate wheezed as she strained forward. "'We just need to—' "'Hey, what's that?' The other saw it, too. A lumpy black object on the ground ahead. The object blended in most perfectly with the rocky ground, and because of the mist they hadn't seen it until they were almost upon it. It wasn't a large rock or even a group of rocks, but appeared to be a long, shallow pile of mud. Though, was such a great lot of mud, it would have come from impossible to guess. And then, as the children came closer, they saw that object was Milligan. Kate cried out and stumbled forward, landing on her knees beside her father, who had opened his eyes at the sound of her voice. As she wiped the mud from his face and begged him to tell him he was all right, Milligan gave her a relieved smile. Now that I see you're all right, I can't come play. He was cut off when Kate threw herself upon him, mindless of the mud. Milligan groaned, then whispered hoarsely, "'Better stop hugging me, Katie Cat. Afraid I'll black out again. From the pain, you know. It's considerable.' Kate had drawn back with a horrified expression. "'Oh, I'm so sorry. How badly are you hurt? Did you really fall off a cliff?' "'Jumped, actually,' said Milligan. "'But how did you get here, then? McCracken said you must have broken every bone in your body.' "'Not all of them,' Milligan muttered. He seemed to be trying not to move his mouth very much. "'and I got here by dragging myself mostly. "'I was on my way to save you.' "'He swiveled his eyes toward the other children "'and Mr. Benedict on the sledge. "'Is everyone all right, then? "'How is Mr. Benedict?' "'For a moment, Kate couldn't answer. "'She simply shook her head and stared. "'Now that she'd gotten over the shock "'of discovering Milligan here, "'she was just coming to realize how bad he looked. "'She'd seen him in a frightful condition before. "'In fact, it was only a year ago "'that she'd seen him covered in mud just like this, "'and injured as well. "'But this was much worse.' He looked as though he'd been trampled by a stampede. His face was so bruised and swollen with hornet stings, he was scarcely recognizable. His shirt and trousers were in tatters. His hat and jacket were gone, and yet he'd been coming to save her. Kate took his hand and held it, noticing as she did so, the handcuff was a short length of chain dangling from it. She felt anger swell up inside her. Milligan winced, and Rennie, standing behind Kate, gently reminded her not to squeeze. "'Mr. Benedict's all right,' Kate said, easing Milligan's hand back to the ground." We're all fine, but how did you survive if you fell, I mean, jumped, into a ravine? Milligan swallowed with some difficulty and said, The bottom was all mud. I'd been there earlier looking for a cave, so I knew. But McCracken said it was more than fifty feet down. Well, I was able to slow myself a bit by dragging along the face of the cliff, and of course I had to land, so... Milligan winced again, though no one had touched him, and his breath came in ragged bursts. Still, I'm afraid in the darkness I... Slightly misjudged the distance. Kate, Rennie murmured, we need to get him into the trees. Right. Okay, Milligan, we're going to lift you onto the sledge and... Milligan made a loiso descent. Listen, Kate, I think I'm going to... He swallowed. Black out again, so listen carefully. Leave me. Cover me with pebbles or something, if you must, and make for the bay. You can't escape if you're dragging me, and I'm ordering you to escape. Do you hear? Go now. Leave me behind. That's an order, so don't even think... Milligan abruptly closed his eyes and fell silent. 
Can't anyone stay awake around here? Constance moaned. Let's get him onto the sledge, Sticky said, coming around to help lift. I assume we're disobeying his order. Of course we are, said Rennie. We have to save him. I was hoping he would save us, said Constance. Kate said nothing. Her grief had rapidly transformed to something else, and she was clenching and unclenching her fists, boiling with anger at the Tin Men for what they'd done to Milligan. She despised McCracken in particular, but all of the Tin Men had played a part. In her fury, Kate wanted to revenge more than anything, and for a moment it blinded her to all else. "'Kate,' said Rennie, shaking her shoulder. "'He'd been calling her name again and again. "'What's the matter? We have to move him. "'If we can't get into the trees, they might not even see us. "'We're almost there, Kate.' Kate looked up and saw the boys staring at her wonderingly. She leaped to her feet, but it was already too late. She saw it on Constance's face. The tiny girl was staring out into the mist, with a look of a deepest dread, and the next moment they all heard what she had sensed. The rumbling. In horror, the children saw the salamander appear from the northern edge of the plain, a black shadow moving through the mist like a dark shark through water. Whipping out her spyglass, Kate found McCracken at the helm, with his own spyglass fixed on her. Beside him stood Mr. Curtin, gesturingly angrily, and behind stood Martina, Garrett, and Sharp, all awake now and surely seething with vengeful wrath. In the spyglass, they seemed close enough for Kate to reach out and hit, and she wanted badly just to do that. They weren't the only ones seething with vengeful wrath. But even in their anger, Kate was sensible enough to realize this encounter was ill-timed. She and the others were doomed. It would only help she could get a lick at McCracken before he overpowered her. How long do we have, Rennie asked her. We can't beat them to the bay, can we? At that speed? With us dragging the sledge? We'll be lucky to make it ten yards into the trees. At least they'll have to go through the trouble of getting out. That's some comfort. The others found this no comfort at all. However, Rennie glanced dependently at the sledge. The prize burden they'd ensured never make it to the bay. He found himself staring into the eyes of Mr. Benedict, who was sitting up straight and yawning. I must have... Ah, oh, I see, said Mr. Benedict, running a hand through his hair. He looked at Rennie and Kilgarin. I choose a terrible time to sleep, I'm afraid. He appeared to grasp her predicament at once, for before Rennie could even think of what to say, Mr. Benedict had lifted Milligan from the ground, and with a rallying cry to the children, set off into the forest with the injured man in his arms. The others exclaimed and hurried after him, Kate slinging Constance up onto her back, almost at an afterthought. Be careful, she cried. He's badly hurt, Mr. Benedict. So I can see, my dear, but I'll have no doubt he'll recover. Mr. Benedict puffed as they ran through the trees. Your father is the most resilient man I've ever known. He'll be fine. Rennie wished he'd share Mr. Benedict's confidence. At the moment, it seemed unlikely that any of them would be fine. Already the salamander had reached the forest edge and veered off to go around. It was too big to pass through the trees, but not before Rennie heard the telltale pause in its rumbling that indicated a ten minute or two would drop off to follow them. The salamander would skirt around the forest to meet them at the shore, whereas any retreat through the woods was now out of the question. Their escape had become, just as Rennie had predicted, an all-or-nothing situation. A few desperate moments more and the haggard, gasping group emerged from the trees and stumbled onto the rocky shore of the bay. There was a beach seaplane, still covered by Milligan's tarpaulin. There in the far distance was a salamander, rumbling around the edge of the forest and turning toward them. And there, in the choppy waters of the bay itself, was... nothing. Sticky took one last look at the empty water and fell to his knees. Mr. Benedict stared at the Miss Shrider Bay with a perplexed look. I take it something is amiss? Rennie stricken covered his face with his hands. I did what I thought. I mean, I hoped. Oh, I can't believe I hoped. Mr. Benedict made a gentle shushing sound. Whatever you choose, Rennie, I'm sure it was the right thing. Now you must brace yourselves, my friends, for... 
Hold that thought, said Kate, pointing at the bay. They looked, and so awesome was the sight that for a moment all the danger flooded their minds. Seen through the mist, the dark hills in the mouth of the bay appeared to be moving, as if they were legs of an ancient colossus. But this was a trick of the eye. In fact, a gigantic shape had loomed behind them, or was even now rushing between them. And now, to the thrill of the stranded, desperate watchers on the shore, the enormous, magnificent body of the shortcut hove fully into view, splitting the waters of the bay. As the ship appeared, its horn blasted with such shocking volume that most of the onlookers covered their ears. The onlookers included those in the salamander, who had hardly needed the horn to call their attention to the shortcut's arrival. Every single one of them was gaping in awe, and even the unflappable McCracken had swerved wildly away from the water before looking back in disbelief. And, well, he might have disbelieved. So disappropriate was the ship that the bay so vastly out of place, it might have been a whale in a bathtub. This way, Mr. Benedict shouted. Though less than a second had passed since its appearance, the shortcut was already bearing down upon the shore. The children ran after Mr. Benedict toward the side of the bay opposite the salamander. Never once did they tear their eyes from the ship, which was churning up gigantic waves, not only of the water but also of mud, for the shortcut's keel was furrowing the bottom of the bay like a farmer's plow. Captain Nolan, just as Rennie had asked him to, was grounding his precious ship to save his friends. Moments later, the shortcut had come to rest, and the island bay in its shore resembled the scene of some unimaginable disaster. Pieces of the destroyed seaplane were strewn everywhere on either side of the ship, whose bow jutted well into the forest, having crushed any number of trees in its path. On one side of the ship, the tin man called Garrett was digging himself out of the mountain in the mud. It was he who had pursued Mr. Benedict and the children through the forest, and he'd just been to catch up with them when the ship crashed ashore, nearly drowning him in water and muck. Behind Garrett, the salamander was moving toward the ship at the bay hast of a furious Mr. Curtin. On the other side of the shortcut, the group of castaways it had come to rescue were likewise hurrying toward the ship, from whose deck Cannibal and a handful of other sailors were tossing down lines. Footholds and handholds had been cleverly knotted into the lines, two of which supported a stretcher, and almost before they knew it, the, cho- mis- the children of Mr. Benedict and Milligan had been whisked up and away into the high deck above. "'There's no time,' Rennie declared the moment he set foot on the deck. "'We have to get everyone in the security to hold.' "'Don't worry, Rennie,' said Cannibal, whose in excitement was grabbing all the children and hugging them in turn. "'Captain Nolan's already given the order. He's coming from the bridge to lead you down. My friends and I intend to stand and fight them off, but—' "'That's out of the question, Joe,' said Mr. Benedict, with unusual severity. "'I admire your bravery, but you'd stand no chance. We won't even slow them down. You must come with us.' By this time, Captain Nolan had joined them, and his expression was a curious mixture of joy and shock at what he'd just done. "'I commend you on a perfect landing, Phil,' said Mr. Benedict, and the captain laughed and embraced him. With Cannibal and another stout sailor carrying Milligan on the stretcher, they all hurried from the deck. Even as they were starting down the ladder, grappling hooks began to sail over the deck flailing, finding purchase with ominous clangs. Mr. Kern and his ten men were coming aboard.' The Royal Navy has two patrol boats on the way, Captain Nolan said, as he led them down to the belly of the ship. They'll be here in half an hour. At the door of the security hold, he ushered everyone else inside before coming in himself. Then, with a spin of the handle and throwing a bolt, the heavy metal door was secured. Children, cried a familiar voice, and number two emerged from the crowd of sailors and security guards crammed into the hold. Her hair was concealed by a winding bandage, and she was scarcely strong enough to hug them all. Rennie and Sticky each took her by an arm, but her face glowed at the sight of them. Mr. Benedict was eyeing the locked door. Half an hour, did you say, Phil? Are you certain of that? Yes, they just radioed to tell me. They aren't far. Mr. Benedict pursed his lips. He turned to face the small crowd. Everyone's face betrayed great apprehension, and not a little confusion. 
Captain Nolan hadn't had time to explain anything to his crew, who knew only that some menace was approaching from above. The extra security guards hired by Mr. Precious, thinking themselves under attack by pirates, were arguing in urgent, agitated tones about whether or not to hand over the decoy diamonds. Mr. Benedict raised his hands to gain their attention, then very quietly said, I advise complete silence, everyone. Our pursuers must find this hold before they can attempt to enter it. Let's not give them any help. Instantly, a hush fell over the room, and a period of tense, silent waiting began. They could all hear the distant thumps and bangs from overhead, as Mr. Kern and his crew made their way methodically through the ship. The security hold was several levels below deck, and there were many passageways and cabins to search. Mr. Kern was taking no chances of learning his quarry slip by him. Ten minutes passed. The noises grew louder. Twenty minutes passed. Still louder. Twenty-five. And then the frightened assembly in the hold heard voices outside their door, followed by a burst of screechy laughter. "'There's no longer any need for silence,' Mr. Benedict announced. "'Move away from the door, everyone. Press into the far corners as well as you can. Joe, will you bear a hand with Milligan?' Everyone squeezed as far away from the door as they could. They were pressed so tightly together it was difficult to draw breath. Milligan lay in a stretcher near the front of the crowd, with Kate kneeling beside him, her arm thrown protectively over his chest. Behind them, Rennie, Stiggy, and Constance were holding tightly to Number Two's arms, or in Constance's case, to her legs, while Mr. Benedict stood with his arms folded, regarding the door as if it were a puzzle. "'What do they want, anyway?' one of the security guards whispered. His fate was white with fear. "'Our friend,' said Cannibal. "'You mean,' said the guard, his eyes widening, "'you mean if we let them have this bunch?' He waved to the children to indicate Mr. Benedict, Number Two, and the children. "'They'll leave the rest of us alone?' The children caught their breath. Mr. Benedict raised an eyebrow. Captain Nolan spun on the guard, fisking him with a steely gaze. On this ship, he said through clenched teeth, we do not sacrifice the innocent to save our own skins. Hear, hear, growled Cannonball, and a chorus of approving voices rang out from the rest of the crew, as well as some from the other security guards. Rennie and the other children, except Constance, who was staring out the door with a frown of concentration, looked gratefully about all these frightened people willing to risk themselves for strangers. Mr. Benedict raised his hands and offered a friendly wave of appreciation. If he was disturbed by the fact that someone had just suggested throwing him and the children to the wolves, he didn't show it. Nor did he seem surprised by the courage and decency of the others. He simply made his wave and then knelt beside Constance, who was still staring at the door. "'What are they doing, my dear?' "'Something bad,' Constance whispered. "'They don't have a plan to get in, and they don't, and they know we'll be hurt. They, "'But they don't care. "'Oh,' her eyes grew very wide, "'they intend to—' But what Constance said next was overwhelmed by a sound of a loudspeaker outside the ship. "'Attention! You and the ship! Come onto the deck with your hands up!' boomed a voice over the loudspeaker. The Royal Navy had arrived. Everyone cheered, and from beyond the door came the sound of loud cursing and arguing, followed by thumping noises as Mr. Kern and his crew rushed away from the door and up several levels to the deck. At this time, the cheering still grew louder and more boisterous, so much so that it was moments before Constance, who had been frantically repeating herself over and over, can make herself heard. To blow the door open, she was shouting. They set an explosive. There was a sudden collective intake of breath, followed by a moment of shock silence. And then Panomium broke out, as several people nearest the door tried to move farther away from it, while those in back tried hard not to be crushed against the wall. The only ones to move toward the door were Captain Nolan, who unlocked it as quickly as he could, and Kate Weatherall, who sprang forward the moment he did. Stuck to the outside of the door, what appeared to be an ordinary business calculator was emitting a faint electronic beep. Kate's sharp eyes immediately made out displays. 31. The 31 changed to 30, then to 29. Snatching the device from the door, Kate turned and boarded up the passage. Captain Nolan shouted after her. No, Kate, let me! 
but Kate was already scurrying up the ladder quick as a monkey. She raced along the passages as fast as she could. As long as she didn't slip, she thought she had a fair chance of reaching the deck in time. And once on the deck, a strange thing began to happen. As Kate ran down passage after passage and climbing ladder after ladder, and as the calculator continued diminishing countdown, her mind began to sort through a great jumble of images and thoughts. She saw the ten men in Thragabagan, the one who had intended to lash them with the whip. She saw Mr. Curtin standing over her with those wicked, shiny gloves, and she heard him speaking gleefully of what he planned to do to Mr. Benedict. But more than anything, she thought of Milligan, of what McCracken and the others had done to him. Was this her life flashing before her eyes? If so, why did she have the odd feeling that she was making her mind up about something? She was almost to the deck now. She glanced at the calculator readout. Fifteen. Fourteen. Thirteen. Kate flew up the final ladder and over to the railing, where her eyes met with a scene of utter chaos. Two Royal Navy patrol boats were coming around the ship's stern, loud speakers booming, and floodlights crisscrossing every which way through the mist. The salamander was directly below, its occupants, Mr. Curtin and the Tenman, looking up at Martina Crow, who had become tangled in a line on her way down, and was hanging by her foot some teeth above them. Screaming for Mr. Curtin to help her, all of this Kate observed in a split second. In the same split second, Mr. Curtin saw Kate at the railing with the calculator in her hand. He gave a visible start. Move, he ordered McCracken. Leave Martina. Leave her, I say. McCracken sent the salamander roaring backward. It's tread spewing mud and some water. But Kate was in perfect position. It would be so easy to stop them. A well-placed throw, and Kate was nothing if not a good shot. And the calculator would land directly in the salamander's path. The explosion would wreck it. Sure, it might kill the wicked men inside, but those men had no qualms about such matters when they'd struck the explosive to the security hold door. Had they? If anyone deserved to be sent sky-high with their own evil contraption, it was these men, and no doubt about it. Kate saw Garrett flick his wrist. She leaped to the left. A razor-sharp pencil whizzed past her shoulder. You just made it even easier, she thought, cocking her arm to throw. The men in the salamander, powerless to do anything else, bent down and shielded their heads with their arms. They were sitting ducks. This would be the easiest thing in the world. Except that Milligan was right. Kate was not like Mr. Curtin and his nasty associates. Not at all. Back on that rooftop in Thargabagan, Milligan had told her as much, and she saw now what he meant. Seeing those men there, helpless to stop her from doing what they themselves would never hesitate to do, Kate realized, with a certain degree of disappointment, but also a degree of pride, that she could never do it, could never do anything that would make her more or less than her enemy could less like her father. And so, instead of throwing the calculator into the salamander's path, she flung it out over the bay, where it splashed into the water. An instant later, the shortcut trembled with the concussion of an underwater explosion. And from that spot where the calculator had splashed, a geyser of water shot twenty feet into the air. The patrol boats, even though a safe distance away, rocked back and forth in the waves caused by the blast. From the salamander, a cheer erupted, followed by laughter, and Kate watched as the machine moved rapidly away from the bay shore, where the patrol boats were helpless to stop it. The ten men were clapping, applauding her decision with scornful delight. As the salamander rumbled away, Mr. Curtin smiled and blew Kate a kiss. Kate made sure he saw her wipe it off. Thank you.